take one. Welcome to Emancipated. Was it fast? Let me do one more. Welcome to Emancipated, voices and images from the Tom and Uncle Bradley Center. So can you just introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Amelia Frank Vitali. I am a cultural anthropologist. I finished my PhD at the University of Michigan uh, earlier this year, in 2021, and I'm currently a, a postdoctoral research associate and lecturer in the program in Latin American Studies at Princeton University. Hello. In this 13th episode of Emancipated, Amelia Franca Vitale talks about the caravan of 2018. She explains why we can look at it as an act of protest against the restrictive policies that govern the right to mobility across the globe today. Amelia, can you tell us what you have been studying? Um, I have been involved, engaged with questions of Central American migration since 2010. Um, I started at a shelter for Central American migrants in Ixtepec in Oaxaca in southern Mexico then. Um, and I worked on questions of violence and resistance in that milieu in Mexico for a number of years. But then as my doctoral project, I focused um, more closely on Honduras, on what happens, uh, especially with young people when they are deported back to Honduras. Um, and then sort of as part of that research, while I was living in San Pedro Sula, the caravan in 2018 began and I, I traveled with them for parts of that journey. Um, although I'd been part of migrant caravans going back to 2011. And since you've seen a few of them, how have they evolved? Yeah, so the the thing about the caravans in general is that they draw from a kind of repertoire of caravans as protest in Mexico that has that goes back further than than the caravans that that made a lot of news but that also have been used by many different uh, social movements um, in throughout Mexican history and 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 across space and time um, so the first caravan of migrants specifically not of family members of migrants, because that's there's another sort of trajectory of caravans there, but of migrants specifically was in 2011. Um, and it emerged because in a particular section of the, of the migration route, um, people were being assaulted regularly, um, violently, violently assaulted as they were trying to get from Arriaga in Chiapas to Ixtepec in Oaxaca. And that is a trip that takes, if you're in a car, about three hours, three and a half hours on the train. Um, and at the time, people were traveling this this route on top of the, the freight train, um, mostly. Um, it could take 12 to 14 hours on top of the freight train. And the trains were being assaulted and uh, uh, authorities, police agents were involved in those assaults frequently. So a group of um priests and activists and journalists and human rights defenders and academics and volunteers and a sort of a whole group of people got together and thought, let's do a caravan. We'll all go to Arriaga and we will physically accompany the people who are there from Arriaga to Ixtepec. So it has this kind of dual purpose of physically providing protection by drawing attention, by having the press there, by having people who have authorization to be in Mexico there. Um, so physically uh, protecting people from being assaulted. But at the same time, it was also sort of this idea of um, making a claim on the Mexican government to protect the rights of people in transit through its territory. Um, so, And that was kind of the first. There was about 300 people, I think. It felt huge. It felt extraordinary. 
Um, and from, so that was in 2011. And so over the last decade, this has emerged and grown um, into what we saw in 2018 and 2019 with tens of thousands of people engaging in, in caravan. And so the idea of a caravan as a mechanism to make your way across Mexico safely um, was circulating. Um, and that kind of enabled the, the sort of zeitgeist to take hold and for the, the caravan in 2018 to, to be as huge as it was and to emerge as spontaneously as it did. And when you talk about the caravans made by the family members of migrants, are you referring to the caravans um, of the madres, the migrantes? Yes, exactly. Of the mothers? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the mothers of disappeared migrants. The, there's a there's a different history of that, that, that really, that does start in Honduras um, with a group of mothers who did a, a first kind of run of getting, getting no answers from anyone in Honduras, getting no, no response from anyone in the government and deciding, well, I guess we need to go to Mexico ourselves to find some information out. Um, and they made it to southern Mexico. Um, and then that kind of also they made links with um, Mexican based activist groups. And those caravans also grew and turned into something a lot more formal and with um, a kind of agenda and and uh, receiving press attention, but then also doing incidencia, doing um, uh, getting involved in actually demanding, making demands on the Mexican state. Um, every year when they come as part of this caravan. Okay, and focusing more on the uh, caravan of 2018, can you explain what happened in uh, Chiapas when the migrants refused the humanitarian visa that the Mexican government was offering to them and therefore they were also refusing to stop? Um, can you explain what that humanitarian visa was all about? So what they were being offered at that point in, in Chiapas, so this was in the leaving Chiapas, this was on the horizon of leaving the state of Chiapas and trying to get into the state of Oaxaca. There was this huge number of people who tried to get into Chiapas from Guatemala, right? And there were moments of a lot of violence, um, the sort of repression at, by Mexican authorities was really quite extreme. And it was something that... Um, I think didn't look good in the sort of international press in terms of human rights. It, I think it was not a good look for the outgoing president at the time, Enrique Peña Nieto. And so Peña Nieto made a kind of announcement. We were in Arriaga, in that same town that I talked about starting the caravan from in 2011. We were in Arriaga when we heard the news of what Peña Nieto was offering. And it was a kind of legal status, a, a way to be present legally in Mexico, but it kept people in Chiapas. The idea was that it was going to be a, a kind of liminal legal status that would allow people to be within the state of Chiapas, to work within the state of Chiapas, but they couldn't leave Chiapas. They couldn't go north. And most people who are part of this caravan, as most people who are engaged in, in migration um, in, in this trajectory, are trying to get to the United States. They're not trying to stay in Mexico, and they're really not trying to stay in Chiapas. Chiapas is Mexico, one of Mexico's poorest states. Um, it's on Mexico's southern border. It borders Guatemala. Um, it is a state where people who are from Chiapas often migrate um, because of the sort of uh, 
tricky economic situation. And, and that is always combined with many, many other things. Um, but it is not a place that is particularly appealing to people who are fleeing violence and poverty and corruption and the whole host of factors that contribute to make people leave Central America. So Enrique Peña Nieto's offer was never really an offer. It wasn't that he was going to give everyone um, the humanitarian visas. There is a, a visa that is known as the humanitarian visa in Mexico um, that is for usually for people who have been victims or witnesses to a crime. Um, and then they get either a six month or a year long uh, permission, a permit, a visa to stay within Mexican territory. And that's not what Peña Nieto was offering the caravan at that moment. I think part of what happened at that moment in, in Chiapas, um, in this moment where they, they, they refused, was that the Mexican authorities were counting on the folks in the caravan to react violently to their um, to the standoff that they provoked. Because we really, it was four o'clock in the morning in the middle of nowhere, a place that is quite remote in the highway leading towards Oaxaca. Um, and these very heavily armed, um, you know, riot cops were were on the highway, not, not with the orders to not let anyone get through, um, and with buses ready to bus everyone back. I think the government was counting on the idea that if people got into Oaxaca, they would lose control of the situation and they would be unable to, to contain them um, for a number of reasons. Um, but and so they, I think that they were hoping that the, the caravaneros would um, react violently, which would then sort of justify the use of force. Um, and then they could kind of round everybody up and, and start the process of deporting everybody. But the thing that was really remarkable about this caravan was the kind of autogestión, the self-organization that had started since Honduras, really. There were comités of people. They they had an asamblea every night to talk about what, as the caravan, their, their desires, their goals, their plans would be for the next day. So the night before in Arriaga, after hearing the message from Peña Nieto, there was an asamblea where together they decided that they weren't going to accept the, the proposal from the Mexican government. Um, but this, this sort of self-organizational uh, approach that emerged uh, throughout the caravan also enabled people to react quite calmly and in an organized manner, really sort of thinking about the, the kind of images from the civil rights movement. And as, as I was in the group that was up ahead to sort of scout the road, and as we realized what was happening with the with the police and the authorities, um, as people started to arrive, as they were had been walking already for for a long time, leaving Arriaga, the decision was made to just sit and sit and sit. And people came and they worked together and they explained. You know, that we it was a group of nearly ten thousand people, and the the image I, I I took some photos, but I remember this image so clearly of just as far as the eye could see, extending back into the sort of hilly area where we were, as the sun was rising, we could see people just filling a highway as far as, as you could as your vision would reach. And so the the refusal to accept Peña Nieto's offer, entre comillas, um, was important. But I think what was really important was the kind of self-organization 
um, that enabled people to react to a provocation, because that's really what it was, a provocation um, in the most disciplined and peaceful manner imaginable. They chose a delegation of spokespeople to go negotiate with the Mexican federal police, um, who are pretty intimidating. Uh, and they had very clear instructions, um, which was, we wanted to advance. We wanted to keep moving. Um, and it was it was really a an extraordinary moment of that kind of organizing um, that had been building since since uh, since Central America in that case. You write about how the caravan of uh, 2018, in particular, um, challenged the system of uh, charity, supported by the government, by the media, and of course also by the human rights organizations um, that are present. Uh, on the ground. What do you mean by that? Well, I think there's a couple of ways. Um, one of the things that we write about in the article is the sort of unapologetic nature of this caravan, this sense of not, not being um, sorry for crossing Mexico, not being ashamed of the choice to try and uh, get to somewhere where they have more of a chance at life. Um, and I think that there is a very strong history, not just in Mexico, but in many parts of the world and in the United States, of a kind of charity that um, is predicated on the idea of a kind of, a kind of lack of agency uh, on the part of the people who are being helped, um, you know, quote unquote helped. And so th there is a, I think there was a kind of challenge to an established dynamic of charity by by this caravan first because of this just enormous size it was really a full sort of town on the move um also by its the lack of of a clear leader i think people kept expecting there to be some sort of um hierarchical arrangement of power that there just wasn't um And then this, this, this sense, and this is why we talk about Lady Frijoles in, in the article, because this sense of having the right to reject aid, having the right to say, this isn't good enough. We don't, we're, we're not here as beggars. We're not here to um, just accept whatever crumbs are being offered to us. Um, there is a sense of political agency on the part of the people who are making this trek northward. Um, and I think that that kind of uh, confronts um, uh, a system of, of charity that has long been sort of at the, at the that is the, that has the, the most organized response to migration that, that often tends to treat migrants as children um, in need of protection and saving when um, most people who are migrating are, are really, uh, really aware of what they're doing and what their goals are and um, have to navigate all sorts of dynamics to try and get to where they're going. Um, and sometimes that means taking, taking charity and being grateful for it. And sometimes it means saying, I can't eat any more beans, which is what sort of the, the legend of Lady Frijoles was. You are listening to Emancipated. Voices and images from the Tom and Ethel Bradley Center. 
Can you explain how the caravan made the migrants less vulnerable? How the hypervisibility, you say, of the caravan uh, worked as a at least partially successful uh, strategy for them? I think one of the things that we're talking about in this article, and this was co-written by uh, a Mexican uh, anthropologist, Margarita Nunez Jaim, um, who was also with the caravan. She was with the caravan more completely than, than I was able to be. So the, the caravan itself is a response to the kind of extreme vulnerability that migrants who are crossing territory without authorization face. And so in Mexico, for many, many years, um, those who are, who are engaged in undocumented migration um, are pushed increasingly to the margins and literal margins, right? They walk through the monte, they walk through the most remote areas, but also sort of the social margins and trying to maintain invisibility as a strategy of, of safety to not get on the radar of the authorities and also to not get on the radar of organized crime, which has for a good decade um, targeted migrants for kidnapping and for service and a whole host of kinds of violence. And so what the caravan does and engaging in the caravan is sort of turn that equation around. And rather than kind of trying to protect oneself by making oneself invisible, it becomes the sort of hyper-visibility of vulnerability as a strategy for safety. And that is, that is what makes the caravan, made the caravan successful. Um, because I, I don't think in this current moment, uh, caravans have had much success. Um, but at the time, really leaning into a kind of public performance of vulnerability was essential to both gaining popular support, to gaining uh, press coverage, which was which was integral, and to putting the Mexican government in a in a particularly complicated situation at, at various levels, so local, state, and uh, and federal government, um, with uh, being unsure of how exactly to go about repression when it, the the group of people was so in your face and vulnerable um, in that kind of unapologetic presence that, that I was talking about. You have also called it an act of civil disobedience, correct? I think that the idea of thinking about uh, clandestine migration as a kind of civil disobedience makes us think about the way in which migration policy is set in a kind of regional agenda that is not so much about um, a relationship between citizens and nation states, um, but that there is a kind of global, international, regional scope to who is determining mobility for whom. Mexico is um, enacting the kinds of uh, complicated relationship of repression and, and detention um, against Central Americans in the case of the, the those caravans, but as we've seen recently in the news, Haitians and people from all over the world, really. But this is really an agenda set by the United States. I think if we if we think about sort of the politics of, of governance as being regional, and we think then I think we have to think about the act of migrating against the law, um, claiming space in a in a territory that 
one does not have a, a citizenship claim to be in is an act of civil disobedience, especially in this sort of large scale against a regional regime that is trying to fix people in place, even though life is increasingly untenable um, for a whole host of reasons, some of which also go back to, to U.S. intervention. But but that is sort of beside the point. The, the point is that there is, there is an extent to which claiming a sense of, of civil and human rights at a supranational level um, is is a kind of is a kind of civil disobedience in a in a regional global governance uh, kind of era. So the caravan of 2018 was only partially successful. What were the obstacles that the migrants were not able to overcome? So I think there's a couple of limits that the 2018 caravan uh, made very clear. One is the physical limit of reaching the U.S.-Mexico border, the kind of collective action that was successful in um, deflating the uh, provocation of the blockade in Chiapas, for example, uh, didn't have the same power when confronted with the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, collective action was was no longer a viable possibility. Um, and I and that was, I think that was deflating to a lot of people in the caravan. I think there was some hope, there's some real hope that those same kinds of collective action strategies would be successful upon arriving at the US-Mexico border and the sort of heavy militarization and um, very, very uh, fortified border um, squashed that hope. Uh, in a in a very direct, very clear sense. Um, and it also, I think it funneled the kind of collective spirit of the caravan into individual options, into individual strategies. And so the way that asylum law works in the United States is very individualized. So those members of the caravan who were thinking about or hoping to apply for asylum we're now going to go at it on their own and each person kind of had, or each family unit kind of had to figure out their own path towards that. Um, others who for any number of reasons didn't have much of a hope of, of even trying an asylum claim started to think about other possibilities, but again, all sort of individual again, now thinking about hiring a coyote or trying to cross uh, into the United States um, without authorization in another way, which often, um, which is a, a sort of individualized process as well. And then some people decided to stay in northern Mexico. Um, there's some uh, labor opportunities in Tijuana um, that are certainly better than Chiapas. Um, and so some people from the caravan ended up staying in Tijuana for, for years. Um, and, and Mexico was also making available different kinds of residency permits and work permits to people in the caravan. And so things sort of dissipated, that collective action, that strength um, that was really evident in Chiapas uh, no longer had the same sort of strategic value. And so everything kind of fell apart um, in Tijuana or, or was, was people were returned to sort of their individual strategies. Um, so that was one sort of limit. But I think the other thing is that part of what was so powerful about the 2018 caravan was the surprise of it. Um, so like I said, there had been smaller caravans, but uh, maybe a tenth of the size of this one. Um, 
the largest, I think in 2014, we got to Mexico City with about a thousand people and that seemed huge and it's just enormous, but it didn't, it didn't garner much attention outside of Mexico. Um, and so I think the, the situation with President Trump in the United States at the time, who was so focused on creating a public anti-immigrant image, um, made the caravan a kind of foil to him. Um, and, and it took the, the Mexican authorities by surprise that were unsure how to navigate sort of a commitment to human rights, uh, not wanting to seem like uh, extraordinarily repressive. The government was outgoing. Peña Nieto's government was outgoing, which also made it very unpredictable. Um, but I think that the Mexican government learned that nothing goes well for them if people are able to kind of trade on that and and make this sort of momentous movement all the way across the, the Republic. Um, and so we saw after 2018, um, a series of caravans start um, in, 20, in early 2019. A couple were, were more successful, but that really, really diminished. And um, COVID certainly ends up playing into this dynamic. But even before COVID, I think the, the Mexican government... Um, really de decided that they just weren't going to let people get out of Chiapas. Um, and that's really what we've seen, that, that, that large groups are really not able to make, to make it very far. The Guatemalan government has also um, done a lot of the work of preventing people from even getting to Mexico now. And that really pushes people back into the margins, back into the shadows. Um, even though I think there are, there are people who would like to give caravans a try still, um, I think everyone is learning that 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 as a tactic, as a strategy, is maybe not the most um, it's not going to be the most success successful in the current climate, and so people are going to adapt and try to figure out other ways. Um, and in some sense, that will push people back into that kind of invisible vulnerability that the caravan was an, an escape from, at least for a little while. A more dangerous trip for sure. Yes. For sure. Yeah, it's much more dangerous. Absolutely. Yes, and numbers of international migrants has tripled in the last 40 years. So migration won't stop just because uh, caravans of migrants are being blocked at borders. But I wanted to ask you, which other forms of uh, protest and organizing do you see? Well, first, I just want to sort of uh, confirm what you said, that it doesn't matter what the policies are in Mexico or the United States. People will continue to migrate. Um People don't make the decision to leave their home country because they think it's going to be easy, because they think that Mexico or the United States has uh, is now going to welcome them with open arms. Um, I think in the United States, there's often a very kind of myopic sense that everything that is happening in the hemisphere is a response to believe changes in U.S. policy. Um, and that's just not true. It's just not the case. Um, folks I know in Honduras when they make the decision to try and leave, it is because one more thing in their life became untenable. Um, people live at the edge, at the margin of, of precarity and, and impossibility all the time. And if one more thing happens, if a family member loses a job, if someone gets killed, if someone gets ill, if there's a hurricane or a flood, there's a whole host of things that can happen that just push people over the edge. And then people try to leave and look for ways to do that. Um, So the caravan at some point was a, an option that, that people thought of, um, but there is no reason to think that since the crackdown on caravans 
or the the situation of the pandemic, there is absolutely no reason to think that migration out of Honduras has has gone down. Um, that's just not that's just not what determines people's decision to leave. Um, as far as new strategies and new new ways and, and ideas and imaginaries of protest, I think that that still remains to be seen. There's something very, very organic about people in the midst of um, fleeing for their lives in, in a very real sense, navigating and trying to figure out what works in the moment. Um, you know, we've seen the there recently in Tapachula in southern Mexico in Chiapas there were attempts at caravans by um, a mixed group of people from from Haiti and also from Central America who had been made to wait in Tapachula for a long time and that was repressed brutally by the Guardia Nacional in Mexico um, but then some people were able to get to northern Mexico and uh, it became sort of the U.S. problem in in Del Rio um, which the U.S. has responded to with deportation. Um, I think there is creative organizing happening all over the place all the time. And um, it's kind of the idea of the multiplicity of tactics that it is people are always trying all sorts of things and all of a sudden something works and you don't know what it is until it does. Um, so there's there's all sorts of things happening within the United States in terms of uh, deportation defense and detention defense and um, people using legal strategies and community pressure and uh, all sorts of things to try and to try and change the the deportation regime that we have uh, that is dominated by this country in Mexico as well. There's a really um, extraordinary and vibrant movement to defend the rights of of migrants in Mexican territory that is always trying different things. Um, I think some people are still betting on sort of caravans as a tactic that is both. Uh, practical in terms of assisting people in moving safely and also a form of protest. Um, I'm not sure that that that, that is going to work particularly well at, at this at this moment, but that doesn't mean it won't again in the future. And I think, you know, the other piece of this is is all the kinds of ways that people are resisting all the time in Central America and in Honduras, in El Salvador, in Guatemala, in Nicaragua. People are engaged in a whole multiplicity of resistance movements trying to change the shape of the world that propels migration from the beginning. Um, and I think all of those things are going to continue as we navigate this increasingly brutal regime. Thank you very much, Amelia. This is Marta Valier, and thanks everyone for tuning in. You have just listened to Emancipated, voices and images from the Tom and Ethel Bradley Center at California State University, Northridge. Please stay tuned for our next episode.